I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause of stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we want to walk as a people who are a people of the light, the people of the life, people of, um, of love. We do not want to be a people who walk and stumble about and are blinded by the darkness. And we, we sense that the answer and the difference between both is found in the Word of God for us this afternoon and uh, our Savior and our Father and our, the Spirit who is behind that. And so, Lord, would you uh, sanctify our hearts? Would you renew our minds? Would you focus us? on the great assurances that we have of eternal life in Jesus Christ now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we're continuing on in our series called Life. And, um, oh, uh, let's go back. There we go. Uh, series called Life. And the question that we've been asking in this series is, how do we know that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us? For those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, how do we know that we indeed possess that eternal life of Jesus Christ? Uh, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, says specifically that the reason why he wrote 1 John was to assure believers in Jesus Christ that they have eternal life. That's the purpose of 1 John. And so uh, throughout this series, which we'll be in for uh, some time, as we, every time we come together, we want to be asking ourselves, what are the tests? What are the signs? What are the principles? What are the assurances that uh, John is giving to us that we who profess to follow Jesus Christ do indeed have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us, both in eternity as a promise and now as a reality? This series, Life, is a very, very important series because uh, we live in a society of confusion. We live in a gray-colored society. We live in a society of chaos. Uh, people don't know who they are anymore. They don't know what life is supposed to be about. They um, have forgotten how to relate to one another. Uh, we are confused about our origins of where we have come from as human beings, what the meaning of life is, what our ultimate destiny is as human beings. We live in a society of confusion. And we look at 
the idea of truth. And we say, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, let's just all live together in non-judgmental tolerance of each other's truth. Uh, we live in a society where we say um, the highest form of truth is just to be true to myself. And this is a society of confusion. It's a society that's devoid of the clarity that comes from God's truth. And so it is in that respect that 1 John speaks into that confusion. He speaks into a society of confusion because John is very much a book of absolutes. It's very much a book of either or, this or that. Uh, we are living in life or we are living spiritual life or spiritual death. We are living in spiritual light or darkness. We have love or we have hate. We live in the truth versus the lie. We either know God or we don't know God. And First uh, John, he forces us to make a choice in what we believe. There's no, well, you know, you can accept this, maybe, yes, maybe, no, just think about it. No, John really comes at you and he forces a choice of clarity. Do we believe um, and, and do we have the assurance of eternal life in Jesus or do we not? And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, um, you want to take away from the series and say, you know, am I seeing these signs, these tests, these principles, these assurances in my life if I indeed profess to follow Jesus Christ? And if I do, I take great assurance for that. I take great assurance not only that I'm going to go to heaven one day and have eternal life, but I take great assurance that I have the life of Christ in me now, if you're a believer. If you're a non-believer, if you're checking out the faith, you want to look at this series and be saying, you know, uh, maybe I believe in God somewhere up there, and, you know, I, I kind of like coming to church, uh, but if I don't see these tests, these principles, these assurances, these signs in my life as I'm hearing the Word of God week after week, and these, we're going through First John, if I don't see this happening in my life, then I really need to be asking myself, do I really have the eternal life of Jesus in me or not? Am I just attending church? And so our passage today uh, is very important. Uh, and we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And this is a very good week for you to be here if you haven't been here the past two weeks since we started the series. Because 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 is really going to summarize a lot of what we've been learning in chapter 1. It's going to take a lot of the main things that John has been talking about, uh, tests, assurances, principles, and assurances of eternal life in Christ. And uh, it's gonna, he's going to remind us of a lot of that in uh, chapter 2, first, first uh, 11 verses. And so uh, the three points that we're going to go over today is uh, we're going to look at our need for the atoning work of Christ for our sin, number one. We're going to look at our need. Do we recognize our need for Jesus' death on the cross, him rising from the dead to conquer sin and death, um, and that atonement of death? to satisfy God's wrath and his judgment on our behalf, that him is the perfect sacrificial lamb. Do we, uh, do we believe we have that need for Jesus' atoning work on the cross? Do we trust in that? Number two, uh, do we find ourselves seeking to obey Jesus' commands in our life voluntarily? Not just because, you know, we're told to, not just because um, we feel it makes us feel better, but do we, do we have this urge to obey Jesus because we feel it's right and it's true. And thirdly, do we find ourselves loving uh, the believers? Do we find ourselves wanting to be in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are we just a Lone Ranger Christian? Or are we just, I'm spiritual, I'm good, I'm just not religious, I do my thing on my own. 
So those are three points we're going to look at in this chapter, uh, in these first few verses. And let's, so let's take a look at that. Let's go to the first point. Okay, perfect. Um, verse 1 and 2. Uh, John says in verse 1, my little children. So we know off the, at the start that John's an older man right now. He probably wrote 1 John, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe he's 85, maybe he's 90 years old. This is maybe about 50 years after Christ. He's writing from Ephesus, Tur- modern-day Turkey. It's in the Bible called Asia Minor. Um, and he's pastoring there, and it's a very wicked, it's a very dark place. And so he's writing from there, and uh, he's he's speaking to his audience as if they're little children. Okay, So this is a man who has a tremendous amount of life experience, spiritual experience. He's obviously one of the first 12 disciples. And he's, he's speaking as a man who has um, thought a lot about the Christian faith for a very long time. And so he's speaking with a sense of gravitas, of wisdom, and truth. And so he says in verse 1 and 2, and he's talking about our need to recognize uh, the atonement of Christ for our sin. And he says um, in verse 1, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Um, actually, the Greek construction of verse 1 really conveys more of the meaning of, well, we're assuming you're going to sin, and so uh, when you do sin, all right? But if anyone does sin, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 2, he is a propitiation for our sins, not just for us, but for the whole world. He didn't save the whole world, but he makes available for those he's drawing to himself to make a profession of faith to save them. So you see three things in here. You see that Jesus Christ is talked about as an advocate, the righteous and the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation or the uh, satisfaction for our sins. John is writing largely at this point to counter, follow this, to counter a false heresy that was just beginning to develop in the early church. Again, this is written maybe about 8590 AD. Uh, we know from church history and from the early church fathers, that by the second, certainly by the third century, there is uh, really the first ancient heresy that came against the Christian faith from outside the faith, which was uh, the pagan heresy of Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosis in the Greek is where we get the word knowledge. And so the Gnostics that John is writing against taught this. They said, you you Christians, you have you know the teachings of the apostles. You Christians, you have... Um, you know, the, uh, the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ, and you're talking about um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Gnostics came along and said, well, that's all fine and good, but there's a higher Gnosis, there's a higher knowledge, that's why they're called the Gnostics, above the Christian faith. You guys took it only so far, we are the true purveyors, of, you know, the, the prophets of God. The Gnostics said um, there's a higher knowledge of God outside the Christian faith, that you can only access through us Gnostics because we have our extra biblical writings, so you need that. You know, sounds familiar, right? Mormons say that. Um, Catholics say that. Um, Jehovah's Witness say that. We have this extra book, right? And, and so forth and so on. And they also said, not only do we have our Gnostic writings outside of the scriptures, but you need to access your God in a very specific way that we will teach you through ancient forms of meditation, uh, mystic experiences, whether we use um, kind of uh, psychedelics in those days or we just kind of chant and we get to God in some higher plane. This is what the Gnostics said. Christian, you're fine, but you're not really getting to the level that you need to get to. And so the Gnostics essentially said this. uh, Yes, there's bad things going on in the world, 
But everything you see in the physical world that's bad is just an illusion. And so because our lives in the material world are an illusion, therefore, evil doesn't exist. And so the implication of that was the Gnostics were going around and, and saying what? Yeah, there's bad things that you and I experience. You know, people die, people suffer, but it's all an illusion. There is no such thing as sin. And so therefore, because there's no sin, you have no need of a savior. We have no need to be accountable to God. We have no need of repentance. And so John is writing that and he's saying, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we are in sin. We need to, to reach out to God as, again, in verse 1 and 2, as we need an advocate. We need someone who's righteous. Verse 2, um, and we, we need someone to be the propiti propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that here today, that as if you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, you are not just saying that evil exists in the world. What you're saying is evil exists in the world, it exists in me, and I have come to the realization that I need an advocate. I need someone who's righteous beyond any human being, and I need someone to a propitiation, a satisfaction to die for my sin and atoning sacrifice. That's what John's talking about. He said, if you come to the place where you recognize your need for a mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, then at that point, you have the faith that comes for salvation. Okay, people will acknowledge today in our 21st century post-Christian context that evil exists in them and in the world. It does, I, stupid people will acknowledge that. Okay, un, unregenerate unbelievers will acknowledge that. Okay? Everyone acknowledges that there's bad things that happen in this world. But not everyone will acknowledge that those bad things that are in the world and in us need to be atoned for. Not everyone will acknowledge that, you know, that they'll call it sin. We don't talk about sin today. We don't call it sin. We talk about, uh, instead, I'm not sinful. Instead, I say, I have areas of growth. I say, I have shortcomings. I have flaws. I make mistakes. We say, um, you can't blame me for my own sin because as long as I'm authentic about where I'm at, as long as I'm honest about where I'm at, how can you pass judgment on me? You can't pass judgment on me, pastor, in a non-judgmental, tolerant culture that's held up to the status of virtue. And so uh, we live in a society where everyone's a victim. Okay? People, some, you know, some people are definitely victims, but we live in a victimless society where everyone's victimized and no one is um, the perpetrator, especially against God. And so uh, John's writing against that. He's saying that's not true, 21st century post-Christian Christians. He's not saying that first century Christians. Uh, that's not true. See, if you're, if you're really wanting to know Christ, you have to get to one of two places. Okay, If you're an unbeliever or if you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, and you are looking for assurance that you have the eternal life of God, you know, that you can come to the eternal life of God. Where John wants to get you, where God wants to get you, is this place. He wants you to see that your shortcomings, your flaws, your mistakes, your, you know, your victimization, all of that is really uh, at the core something that's not going to change outside of Christ. And that core is that you are a sinner. 
And we know that you're a sinner in unbelief because the Bible says that over and over again. We're all sinners without Christ. The only way you can acknowledge that you're a sinner is if you can acknowledge there is a God who is worthy to judge and what he has declared as truth uh, at, in, um, in our status before him. And that doesn't change outside of having an advocate. It doesn't change outside of having someone who's righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. Do we believe? And if you're an unbeliever out there, that's how God sees you. He sees you as a sinner who has not acknowledged your need for the atonement for your sins. Now, if you are a believer, you still need to recognize your need for the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, yes, you came to faith. You placed your faith in his crucifixion and his resurrection to new life. But uh, And the Bible says consistently that you have moved now from sinner theologically, to saint. If you're a Christian, you're not supposed to call yourself a sinner anymore. That's why when you look at the, uh, the epistles of Paul, when he wrote to the Roman church, to the Colossian church, to the church at Ephesus, and so forth, he starts off in the first couple of verses saying, to the saints that are at Rome, to the saints that are at Ephesus, to the saints that are at Colossae. Why? He's not writing to these, you know, high-esteemed, venerable, you know, super-Christians. He's writing to normal-day Christians, just like you and I. And he calls them saints. Why? It's because that is the change of new identity in Christ. The old has passed away as a sinner. The new has come. You are now a saint. You are a saint because you have Christ. But you are a saint who is still sinful. And that's the difference. We as Christians don't call each other sinners. We call unregenerate people sinners. We as Christians call each other saints. But we recognize we are saints who are still sinful if you call Christians sinners, there is no change in identity theologically. And so we, wanna, we want to, uh, it, it's like, you know, this is what AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, gets right and wrong. Uh, if you, have you ever been to an AA meeting? Okay, I have, not because I was, you know, struggling with alcoholism, but I had to go as part of observing when I was in seminary. Uh, my cousin took me one time when I was younger because she was part of it. And one of the interesting things about AA is that, uh, you know, in the times I've gone, and I think it's a pretty straightforward format, whenever someone comes up to the podium and shares, uh, you know, their, their testimony, uh, they're required to start with the same line. And it goes like this. Hi, my name is, you say your name, and the second line is, and I'm what? An alcoholic. And what AA says is that we want you to acknowledge the problem the first thing out of your mouth. You say your name and you say that this is a problem, okay? Now, what's commendable about that is they start from a place, if you're going to participate, you start from a place of humility, of acknowledging the problem. That's commendable. What is different, though, about AA versus the gospel is we don't come up here as Christians and say, hi, my name is Chris and I'm a sinner because I haven't had an identity change in Christ then. What I say is, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a saint in God's eyes. But I do struggle with areas of sin in my life. But my identity is now as a saint. So you need the atoning work of Christ, Christian, because um, you are reminded that our sin that we are constantly in, even though it doesn't change your identity, is continually needing to be forgiven and cleansed by the work of Christ on the cross.
And so how do we know? How do you know that you, uh, you're not just saying that you need the atonement uh, or atoning work of Christ, but it's actually truly been manifest. What are some practical ways that you can see that in your life? Uh, let me just give a couple. Number one, you can know that you actually believe that you need the atoning work of Christ, and therefore it's a sign that you have the eternal life of Christ in your life. Uh, by are you willing to honestly verbalize and, and trust in the cross, the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Do you believe that? Do you believe he had to die on the cross for your sins to satisfy God's wrath and his judgment and to defeat death and sin in his resurrection? Do you believe that? Is that your profession of faith? And if that is, that's a, an assurance that Christ's life does indeed live in you. A second way you can know that you have, uh, you truly believe in that Christ needed to atone for your sins is that you find yourself voluntarily confessing your sins to the Lord or even to other believers. James chapter 5. First um, John 1 says if we uh, are if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5 says that we are to confess our sins to one another. Do we find ourselves doing that? Now when it says confession it's not talking about just going into a Catholic booth where you're confessing to an anonymous priest uh, it's not saying just kind of ritualistic, hey, you know, Hail Mary or or whatever that might be. It's really coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I, I, uh, this this is area of idolatry in my life. This is an area of sin. This is not, you know, when I confess my sins to the Lord, okay, I feel bad enough. Uh, no, I don't feel bad enough to be honest. Um, but I feel bad, and uh, I say, Lord, um, this is not who I'm supposed to be. This is not who you have created me to be in Christ. I am weak. I have failed. I, um, I recognize these, these propensities that I'm prone to idolatry, that I'm a self-absorbed person as I think about myself or in my marriage or parenting or relating to you guys or other people. I fail to do the good. I know, it. But you know what? That's not who I am, Lord. And it's, it's who I am as an unbeliever. But it's not who I am in Christ. And so, Lord, help me to live out who I know I am in Christ and who you say I am. And so that, that is different, it's a different kind of confession, right? Because when you say, this is not who I'm supposed to be, it starts from a position of new identity. It starts from a position where God is for you and not against you. No condemnation in Christ, Romans 5, um, or Romans 8, rather. Um, and thirdly, not only do we uh, profess Christ and belief in his cross and resurrection, his work there, not only do we confess sin, but we also find ourselves receiving communion. We want to receive communion. And that's part of the reason why the early church gathered together. You know, they're breaking bread together every week. Um, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? The blood that was shed through this wine, the, my body that is broken through this bread, and so one of the reasons why you want to be in fellowship with other believers is to um, be in a place where you're receiving communion in the body of Christ. That, communion is your declaration that you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Christ for your sin. And it is also secondarily um, a communal event that it is through Christ, like we say, Christ did not come, go on the cross to be a headless body, right? 
he went to the cross. He is the head, but he went to the cross to create a spiritual body called the church. And when you receive communion, it's not only your personal remembrance of Christ, but it is our corporate remembrance of Christ and is our declaration. We together have been brought together in Christ through the cross. And so, um, and that is only done through the atonement. So the first is that we need to recognize and are, are we believing in the atonement of Christ for our sin? And if so, that's an assurance that the life of Christ is in you both now and in for eternity. All right, let's go to the second part. Number two, as we go to verse three through eight, let's look at that second part. Um, we seek to obey Jesus's commands. We seek to obey Jesus's commands. Okay, if you look to verse three through eight, um, we find this in verse three, verse five, and verse six. It says, "We know that Jesus. We we know that we've come to know Jesus if we obey His commands." And we want to live like Jesus. Verse 3, verse 5, and verse 6. Go to verse 4. He says, if you say you know him, but don't keep his commands, uh, you are a liar. There's no truth in you. In verse 5, he says, if you keep his word, God's love is perfected in you. Verse 7 and verse 8, he says, essentially, I'm going to summarize this, there's old truths that you have known, like the old truths of the Old Testament, love one another, honor God, etc. Um, and these truths, these old truths, are fulfilled in the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the, the new commandment that fulfills the old commandment, verse 7 and 8. In verse 8, again, he says in the first part um, that the truth, what is true, is in us. That was true in Jesus Christ. When you follow Jesus Christ, you're not just saying, I believe in a truth. You're saying the truth, the embodiment of truth, the way, the life, and the truth, truth personified in Jesus Christ has come to live inside of me. And it is that truth who comes to live inside me, Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, that now works together with the written truth that is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and that written truth, working together with the living truth in you, comes together to lead you into truth. And so, uh, second assurance, principle, sign, is that um, we know that we have come to um, obey Jesus Christ. We know that we have come to obey Jesus Christ. Does it have it up there on the slide? Oh, there we go. We... Um, Keep his commands, something like that. Um, we keep Jesus' commands. Who you obey is who you belong to. Who you obey is who you belong to. You're in the military. You obey your commanding officer. And you belong to your commanding officer as well as the military. Uh, and you obey them because they have authority over you. And you therefore belong to them. Your boss. You obey your boss. Why? Because they have authority over you. And you belong to, essentially your boss has power to, Hire and fire you. You belong to the company in which you work for. If you uh, are playing sports, you're going to obey your coach because you belong to a team. And who's the leader of the team? The coach. If you belong to yourself, 
you will obey yourself. Because that's the final authority that you see, is yourself. And uh, you will take your chances between yourself and God. Who you obey is who you belong to. And God wants us to obey him. Because it is in the obedience to our Lord and his words that he shapes our character. There's no character, there's no spiritual maturity, you guys. There's no growing as a Christian without obedience. You just can't get away from it. Okay, this is not, I believe, therefore I'm saved, and then I just trust and I pray without obedience. Um, the road to Christian maturity is the road to obedience. You ask any parent, no parent would call their kid mature who doesn't obey what they say, right? And so that's why we're parents, and that's one of our roles. So how do we know that we actually are keeping Jesus's commands? How do we know that, you know, what does that look like uh, for us to, to know that in keeping Jesus' commands, well, we have the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ? What, what does that actually look like, keeping his commands? Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about several examples. Number one, uh, you know that when you're keeping Jesus' commands and there's life, behind that act. It's not just a ritual, but when you're keeping Jesus' commands, it's actually coming out of the eternal life of Jesus inside of you when you want to obey. You want to obey Jesus' commands. You want to do it because you want to please your Lord and Savior. There's a desire to please Him. You want to do it because you have a holy fear of Him, and that's a good thing. There's nobody here that's altruistic enough to say, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm good enough, hearted enough to obey someone simply uh, because out of their love for me, you know, out of their love for me, that will, that will continually motivate me to be obedient. No, no, we're, we're not that altruistic. You know, because see, you actually need both. You need love as a motivator and fear. Um, if you don't have a holy fear of God, of Christ, uh, your heart will not ultimately have a life of obedience because our hearts are naturally rebellious. And if we don't sense that there are consequences to disobedience, we don't sense that there is judgment for disobedience, we will take advantage of love and patience. That's how it is. That's how we all are as kids. Our parents are loving, they're, they're nice to us, or whatever. Maybe yours were, maybe they won't, but they gave you second, third chances. Oh, yeah, but the moment we sense as a kid, you know what? There's no discipline here. There's no consequences here for my actions and my disobedience. What do we do? We say, well, whatever, I'll get away with whatever I can. But the minute we know that there's consequences, well, that keeps us in line. And you know what? That's good. Do you see that as good? Because you know what God does? He does. He sees as necessary for us to have a holy fear of him that will help lead us to obedience because he knows that that's life-giving to us. Do we delight in the truth? Um, and we do this to obey. We do this to obey. Follow this. When we are Christians and we disobey Jesus' commands, we still have a peace about us in terms that it doesn't sever our relationship because um, no one can snatch us away from Jesus, you know, if he doesn't want. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So there's a peace about us when we disobey. But then as believers, there's not a peace about us because 
We want to please our master. We have a holy fear of him. We delight in the truth. And so even though we have a peace that he's not going to cast us away, we don't have a peace because we're, we're not living in a way that we know that we should and we want to please him in obedience. A second example, um, keeping Jesus' commands. We, uh, we want to study the word. We want to study the Bible. Now, you may or may not be there and saying, well, I, I read for an hour a day. You know, you're awesome if you do. Many of us don't. But is there a general sense that I, I want to know the word of God? I'm drawn to this. Like the Bereans in Acts 17, you know, they're checking the scriptures. You know, if you're here today, you're here because maybe you're here because you want to have friends, you want to see friends, and that's fine. That's, that's all good and, and good and important. But, you know, really the main reason why you should be here, although having friends is good, is you should be here because you want to worship the Lord and you want to learn from the Word of God. You should get it. You, you find yourself being, I'm looking forward to hearing something that will instill in me truth. Do you, do you find yourself being that? Um, third, you want to learn from teachers that are rightly dividing the truth, word of God. Right, teachers that are rightly dividing the truth and the word of God. 2 Timothy 2. Do you find yourself saying, you know what, I want to learn from a good teacher. It's here at the church. Maybe it's on the radio. I don't know where it is. Maybe it's in a book. But you're saying, um, I want to seek out uh, men who are faithfully teaching the word of God or women who are teaching the word of God to other women, whatever that might be. Um, you, you're not satisfied to listen to lame teaching that's uninspiring, that's unprecise. You want to find good teaching because you care about the word of God. And you know that it matters when, you, when it's being taught rightly and divided. Uh, fourth, uh, final example on this point. We know that we are keeping Jesus' commands when we are willing to receive correction. Willing to receive correction in our disobedience. We're like Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 10. He said, correct me, O Lord. He's calling out to God. He says, God, correct me, O Lord, but do it with justice, not anger, or you might bring me to nothing. Okay? This is Jeremiah. He's calling out to God, correct me. You want to know a scary prayer to pray? You look at the prayers of David. You look at Jeremiah here and others. When you come to God and say, Lord, see if there's any wickedness in me and judge me accordingly. Lord, correct me. Oh, man, that will put the fear of God in you. You come to God and you go, no, I'm pleading, God. If I'm in sin, you discipline me. You correct. I'm begging for it, God. How many of us are daring enough to pray that prayer, right? And if you are you are to uh, be commended because what that shows is that if you're willing to do that, um, and I think that God is looking for that. He's looking for that. He's looking for his children to have the confidence in the truth, to have the confidence in him and the trust in him to say, Lord, um, I'm not going to say this out of arrogance. I'm not going to say this out of stupidity, but um, I, I feel like I feel confident. I know your heart. I, I, I know your word. And so if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, um, correct me. Most of us don't like being corrected. Most of us don't. We have pride. We have stubbornness. We, you know, we think pretty highly of ourselves. I'm included in that. Um, and yet when, when a brother and sister comes to you and corrects you and says, you know, hey, 
lovingly, patiently, gently, but truthfully corrects you and says, hey, my brother or hey, my sister, um, I'm for you. I'm with you. But you know, you should think about this thing that's going on here that you're a part of. And, uh, you know, I'm saying this out of love, but you you really got to rethink what you're committing your life to in this idol or in this going wayward because this is not going to be good for you. It's not owing to the Lord. Um, it's disobeying the Lord, and, and you need to really think about that, okay? And, you know, when you receive that, you know, I, I've, had, I've said stuff like that to people, and I've never seen them again. You know? <laughs> Everything's great when you're nice, right? But you got to ask yourself, if you have Christian brothers and sisters, and we're not talking about going around creating a church of heresy hunters, where every, we're looking for every single deviation from any disagreements. Oh, I call you on that. We're not looking for that. We're not looking for people who are Pharisees. But in general, you know, you guys are smart enough to tell the difference, to say, you know, there comes a time when we need to say something. They're not your friends, okay? They're not your brothers and sisters in Christ unless they're willing to lovingly say something to correct you. Now, you may reject that. You may leave. You may ignore it. But, you know, uh, you, and, and you know, you don't always have to say, oh, my goodness, when you said that. It was like the gates of heaven opened up. I saw my sin. I saw him. And it's all because of you. Thank you. I, you were totally right. I was totally wrong. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, maybe you might. But I... Sometimes, you know, someone will say something, and I'll be like, okay, let me think about that. And I won't like it because it stings. But then as I think about it, I go, you know what? That person was right. They were right. Maybe I told them, maybe I didn't, but they were right. And I do need to change their ways. And I know where they're coming from. They're not against me. They're for me. And you appreciate that. You appreciate that. The book of Proverbs says over and over again, you know what? Uh, if they're truly your friend, they'll be willing to wound you. Okay? And... Uh, and so we want to be a church where we're not only keeping Jesus' commands, but encouraging people to keep Jesus' commands to continue to walk in eternal life. Uh, let's move on to our third point and final point today. All right, verse 9 through uh, 11 is our third point that we uh, have an assurance of knowing the eternal life of Jesus Christ when we recognize our need for the atoning work of Christ for our sins, number one. Number two, when we seek to obey Jesus' commands voluntarily, volitionally. And number three, when we find ourselves loving other brothers and sisters in Christ, wanting to be in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We come to church not because it's just a duty, not just because it's something we want to do, not just because of what other people are doing, not just because it's cool at a cool church. We come to church, why? It's because um, if Jesus lives in you, he lives in other believers, and we are commanded to come together, and we are commanded, Christian, to come together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of, some Christians are in the habit of not meeting together. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but coming together to encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, right? We are commanded to come together, but even, it's not just a command. There should be something inside of you, if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, and he truly does live inside of you, that draws you to other believers. Say, I want to be here. 
I want to know others and I want to be known by others. It's life-giving to me. I'm necessary here. And so are you. Uh, you know, that's why unbelievers and atheists don't stick around churches. You know, they might check it out, but they, if they're truly hearing the gospel message, they will not stick around unless they're willing to yield their heart to Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is not drawing them to other believers. And so in verse A, B and verse 11, 9, 10, 11, this is what John is saying. He's saying, if you're in the light, verse 9, um, He's saying, uh, if you say that you're in the light, but you hate your brother, you're in darkness. And if you love your brother, you're in the light. You're not stumbling. Verse 11, but if you hate your brother, you're in darkness. You're walking in darkness. You don't know where you're going, and you're blind. And uh, I think that might describe many of us at times. And so here's how it works, theologically. Okay? When you come to faith, uh, Romans 5.5 5 says that God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit is poured into your heart. It, God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit is downloaded into your heart in, upon coming to faith. Romans 5.5. 5. And then in John, 1 John 4, verse 12, it says, As no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... One another is always one believer to another believer. If we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, verse 12. So as God's love is downloaded into our heart through the Holy Spirit, and then we love other believers who also have that same love into their hearts through the Holy Spirit, God's love is now perfected in us as we love one another. Um, you know, at, at church... Um, we usually love, or just people, we, we usually love people who are just like us. We love people who are the same race as us. We love people who are the same socioeconomic status as us. Rich love the rich, poor uh, are usually in community with the poor, not the rich. We love other people who are in the same life stages as us. Um, families usually hang out with families. Singles hang out with singles. Uh, we usually hang out with people who have similar interests as us. You know, I like you because you have the same hobby, the same sport, the same whatever, you know, that you, I like to do. That's human, and that's natural. But what the church is supposed to be is when you have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in you, we're coming together, and we're looking around, and I say, okay, I see you over there, and you're the same race. I see you over there, and you're not the same race. I see you over there, and you're the same socioeconomic status as me. I see you over there, and you're not the same socioeconomic status as me. I see you over there, and you're a family. You're single. You have this interest that I like. You have a totally different interest that I like, and yet we all come together as in Christ. And we love one another. We don't, we don't turn to one another and say, you know what? I'm married with kids. You're single. You're less than me because you're not like me. We don't say, hey, I've got more than you. You have less than me. You're nothing to me. Or I have less than you. You have more than me. I'm jealous and I hate you for that. We don't say, uh, you know, uh, if you don't, you know what? If, if you don't, uh, have the same interests in me, the same hobby, the same affinity that I have that is had nothing to do with the Bible, then we're not going to be friends. We're not going to hang out because I only, in reality, I call you a brother in Christ. But if we don't share the same interests, like doing the same things, then yeah, you're, there's going to be this invisible force field where you're not going to really going to get to know me or I'll get to know you because we don't have the same interests. And the definition of Christian community becomes not are we brother and sister in Christ, but what? Do we simply share the same interests of our love of a sport 
or music or you know whatever technology and that really becomes a definition of who's in Christian fellowship or not who loves each other and who doesn't and that's carnal it's worldly see what the church is supposed to be is Jew looks at Jew and say I love you because we're Jews in Christ but Jew looks at Gentile and says I love you because you're a Gentile in Christ as well and so Gentile Christians need other Gentile Christians but they also need Jewish Christians and vice versa so how do we know how do we know that we're not walking in darkness, that we're not stumbling around, that we're not blinded? Verse 9 and 10. Um, several examples. We want this church, we want City Bible Church to be the type of church where people, uh, brothers and sisters, love one another. Where we mourn with those who mourn and we celebrate with those who celebrate. Example one. This is an example of how we together as a church can love one another and not live in darkness. We mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate. You know what you're going to find your whole life? It's true in the world and it's true in the church. Okay, um, You will find the rest of your life people who will mourn with you when you mourn, but they will not celebrate you when something good happens. They will identify with you and say, you know, I, I, you know, I really feel bad when you're hurting and I see your life you know, going down and I feel bad about that. But the minute your life goes up and something great happens, they won't be there to celebrate with you either. Now, I, I get it. Not all of this can always be there for everyone who's mourning and everyone who's celebrating. But in general, you got to ask your heart, you know, are, are you the type of Christian who only mourns with those who mourns? But when something good happens to another Christian, you see it as a competition. You see it as, well, if you succeed, I, I'm less because you're better than me? Or can we celebrate those who even do better than us? See, that's Christian fellowship. So you're going to find people who will mourn with you when you mourn, but not celebrate with you when you have something to celebrate. You also find the opposite. There are some people, both outside and inside the church, who will celebrate you when you celebrate, but when your life goes down, okay, they're not willing to mourn with you mourn. You know, they're really fair-weather friends or fair-weather Christians. And the unfortunate reality is there, it's very rare, it's too rare, to find Christians who will both mourn with you when you mourn and celebrate with you when you celebrate. And that's a form of love. That's a form of walking line. That's the type of church we want to be. Again, not all of us is going to always be there for every single person when they celebrate or mourn. But in general, you want to keep that in mind, Christian. Do you celebrate and mourn equally well with other believers? Another example of loving um, is when we affirm. When we affirm one another. You can affirm one another in many ways. You can do it verbally. You can do it through an action. Verbally, when we see each other, you know, this should not be a place where we're just tearing each other. I know guys like to joke around. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. Uh, but when we affirm one another, we encourage one another, when we say, hey, you know what? I really appreciate it. I, I want to let you know what I see, the good things God doing in your life. And you proactively tell them, not just, you know, if it comes up in a small group sharing, you have to share, it's your turn to share. But when was the last time you actually proactively went up to someone? Hey, I just want to bless you. This is a good thing I see God doing in your life. Or I want to tell you, I want to take the initiative to tell you, um, I really appreciated that about what you did. Or I saw what you did for another person. I want to encourage you in that. You know, we, when was the last time we took the initiative to do that instead of being asked or, or forced to do that? Um, so you can do that through words. You can do that through actions. You know, um, I, I, I have been saying, you know, I really dropped the ball on this, but I made this right. Me and Lorraine had said that we were going to support Matt F. in his uh, missionary raising and, and his missions. 
um, many months ago, and uh, I just dropped the ball in it, but that has been rectified now. And so uh, when you check, you know, we are monthly contributors to uh, Matt F. And, and him raising support for, to prepare for Jan, uh, Japan missions. But that is a part of our actionable affirmation of him and say, uh, Matt, we believe in you. We believe in you as a missionary, as a person, as a brother in Christ. And we want you to do well in life and, and spread the gospel around. And so um, you can do that, you know, and that's part of, of loving uh, other brothers or, or sisters in Christ. Another example, um, eating with each other, making time for one another. Um, I, I t- when we discuss this with the elders and the deacons, I say to them, look, you know what, uh, what you really want to see, and, and I, I'm speaking on personal experience, you guys. I spent years and years and years going to church and just being like, you know, I'm just going to go to the service. I'm, like, I'm not going to make friends. I'm just going to do my own thing, whatever, whatever. Um, and, you know, part of that was my issue. There was other issues going on. But um, I, I didn't understand the importance of Christians breaking bread together. So many good things come together when Christians say, because what are you saying? What are you really saying when you're willing to go eat with other people? What you're saying is, I value you. You're saying that um, I'm, I'm not going to always put my time and my schedule above you. Look, we're all, who isn't busy? We're all busy, right? Is there anyone among us that's not busy here? And yet we carve out time to say, you know, breaking fellowship is good because the Holy Spirit works through those times and we love one another and he does beautiful things through that. And I get, you know, so we can't always do that every time, but in general, um, I think in a healthy church, you eat together and you make time to hang out together. One of the things you want to see happen, if you're in a small group, you've got to ask yourself this question. If you are part of any church and you're going to the Sunday service, one, Two, maybe you go to a small group. Beautiful thing. But the magic happens. It's not, those things are important. Those need to be there. But there's real magic that happens. Magic in a good way. When people who are part, who come here on Sundays, maybe they're part of a small group, choose to then voluntarily hang out outside of that. Because what you're saying is, I come together as the body of Christ, not only when there's programmatic, organized things by the church, but I value and love you outside of that, but of my own free choice and time. Um, two, two other quick things and we're done. Um, love, we show we love other believers when we serve and bless them, when we serve and bless them. Uh, James, the Tsushimas, and whoever else was part of organizing that, um, you know, line dancing last night, uh, that was a blessing to the group. And it's just for fun to have uh, something that some of you liked and share it with the others. Um, I've talked before, Nathan making the Live Edge wood table uh, for downtown LA. He's using, uh, he's serving, he's blessing the community. Chris teaching the, the, the class after downtown LA here at Cerritos. Um, there's guys in downtown LA, Sebastian Holland, David, uh, Brian there in the back who are working to create a lot of creative projects in the church that will bless the church we believe in. Elders, deacons, there's so many of you, worship team, so many of you that... Um, are saying, you know what, I'm going to serve, I'm going to bless others, and that's my way of showing love to the body of Christ. And finally, um, you show love for the body of Christ, other believers, when you're a good follower. When you're a good follower of other people. A lot of you have been told just to be a leader. Who can be a leader of other people? Who can be a self-leader, right? And there's, there's a place for those conversations. But... You know, when you look at the page of the scripture, there's far more emphasis 
on being a good follower. Being a good follower of Jesus and being a good follower of other people. Not being a great leader. And so you have, you got to ask yourself, my expression of love is I put my ego, I put my pride, I check it in the door, at the door, and when I'm part of a community of faith, I'm a good follower of other believers. I'm a good follower of leadership. You read Hebrews 13, and it says in verse um, verse 7, it says to, um, to, uh, to remember your leaders, to remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of your faith. But then you go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, and it says, obey your leaders. What type of leaders do you obey? The kind that you can remember who spoke the word of God to you and whose faith is uh, worthy of imitation. And in verse 17 of chapter 13 of Hebrews, it says, obey your leaders, for they keep a watch over you. And you want to obey them so that their work may be a joy, not a burden, because if you have a church of disobedient followers, it becomes a burden on leadership. And then he ends the verse by saying, because that would be of no benefit to you as a church. And one of the best ways you can show love to leadership is to simply being, you know what, I'm a good follower. If you're teaching me the word of God, if your life is calling me to follow you as I follow Christ, and I want to be a good follower. And that's my one of my expressions of love towards the body of Christ. Okay, so um, as we close, uh, thank you for hanging in there. We need to recognize our atonement, the work of uh, Christ's atoning work for sin. We want to focus on saying, "I want to obey the commands of Jesus because that is important. And that's life giving." And we want to say, "You know what? I'm going to make time to love other brothers and sisters in Christ." And if that's you, if that's you you have some pretty good assurances that the eternal life of Jesus Christ lives in you. If it's not, you need to do some real soul searching in your life because the last thing you want is for you to come to Jesus at the end, Matthew 7, and say, Lord, Lord, look how many times I went to church. Look how many things I tried to do for good for people. Look at, and he says what? Get away from me. I never knew you. All right, so let's close together. Father, as we... Um, Close our time in the word, and we worship you, Lord. Um, may the saints have a great assurance of eternal life. May we not doubt, may we not worry that that will be taken away from us, but may we live out of that eternal life. May we live as people who are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.